Well, we're returning here to John chapter 13 to this section of Scripture, uh, just a wonderful section of Scripture for the second time. And we're looking at the life of Christ through the lens of the Apostle uh, John. And we've really, as we get to chapter 13 here, entered into a new section. We're Thursday night in the final week before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, before his death, burial, resurrection, which will happen early on a Friday morning, the next day when he's going to be arrested, and then in the afternoon he'll be murdered. I told you the last time there's kind of a time element interesting here as you get to chapter 13 in this new section in John's gospel. He compresses everything. Everything's going to happen very rapidly. So the first 12 chapters happen or occur over about a three-year period of time in the Lord's ministry. But chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 uh, are, are just the night, chapter 17 even, just the night before the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, uh, taken prisoner. Uh, again, chapter 17 being this, uh, what is known commonly as the high priestly prayer, the Lord's intimate one-on-one uh, conversation with his father before the crucifixion, chapter 18, the events of the arrest, death, arrest, death and burial, resurrection of Christ. So everything's rapid, everything's very compressed in this last uh, uh, 24 hours or so before the uh, crucifixion, the murder of Christ. And, and as I said uh, also last time, the section before us is really the heart of the Lord's ministry to his people, uh, specifically his disciples, the heart of his ministry to his disciples. This is his personal interaction with them. This is him preparing them for his departure, uh, uh, for the time is at hand for him to leave and go back to his father. So the Lord wants to make sure that his disciples are absolutely certain of his love for them as he's about again to depart from them. So chapter 13 really is a turning point in the ministry of uh, John's gospel and the ministry of the person of Jesus Christ. It's uh, uh, the turning point because Jesus' public ministry is now over. The nation of Israel has completely rejected Jesus as their Messiah, uh, uh, and uh, they have condemned him to die publicly. But in his magnificent power, in God's magnificent power, he's going to take the evil of men and overturn it for the greatest good of those who repent and believe upon Jesus Christ, who again is the great final sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ is going to die the next day as the true Passover lamb. Jesus Christ is going to die as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ is going to die because he alone is the one who can take away the sins of uh, the world. Right? And, and we're, again, <clears throat> about 24 hours, less than 24 hours before uh, Christ's uh, execution, that horrible, awful death that he will die being nailed to the cross, bearing the full measure of God's wrath against humanity's sin, really bearing the full measure of our sin as he stands in our place as our substitute, although he is sinless. So the cross with all of its horror, the cross with all of its shame is literally bearing down upon him. And with a complete knowledge of what is coming, Jesus nevertheless is preoccupied with the needs of his disciples. So he sets aside the interests of himself for his, for for their interests. He focuses on them. He focuses on trying to strengthen them and reassure them and prepare his disciples for the trial that they're soon about to endure as from this point forward, after he goes to the cross and ascends, of course, uh, they're going to have a lifetime of ministry without him being present. So he's trying to prepare their hearts. So again, it's just a wonderful portion of scripture and it really shows forth the love that God has for us, the, the love that God has for his own, the care that he has for his own. And that's really the theme of these upcoming chapters. The love of Christ for his own. Again, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to be with the Father, having looked at his loving, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As a man's date with death comes, uh, there tends to be a sharpening of the focus. Right? It's been said that what's closest to a man's heart is usually what becomes apparent in the hours before his death. So Jesus is revealing what is really closest to his heart as the cross is coming near. And again, it's his unfailing love for his own. His own dominated his thoughts, his feelings. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Which really speaks to the great reality, the fact that there's no greater blessing than to be called one of God's own. To be loved by him to the end. God who has created us in his image. Not to, not to live a meaningless life like the vast majority of the world experiences on a daily basis, 
but we've been created in the image of God in the highest image possible to have communion with the one who's created us. Therefore, there's a fundamental dignity stamped within every human soul as a result of God's love for us through Christ. We who are his creation, he loves his own, those whom he created to have relationship with him. Now, before the feast of the Passover, again, I told you it's Thursday evening, we talked about the fact that the Galileans celebrated the Passover on Thursday, the Judeans on Friday. So the Passover is legitimately uh, celebrated on two adjoining days, which permits temple sacrifices to be made over a four-hour period of time rather than a two-hour period of time. Last time we went back into Matthew chapter 26 to see the preparations that were made in advance of this time point in time, back into Thursday morning when the Lord sent uh, Peter and John to secure a location in what is commonly known as the upper room where Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Again, seeing how Jesus Christ is really sovereign over all the events of his life and even these last events that are unfolding because he secures in advance a place uh, supernaturally. Go tell this guy. Find this guy. We don't know his name. right? Remember I told you that last time. Go find this man and he's going to say this is where you need to go. So God in his sovereignty, Christ in his sovereignty has this all prearranged, all ordained to meet on God's timetable. And again, Jesus Christ knows everything that's about to unfold. It's what it says in John 18, 4. Uh, nothing catches him off guard. He knows his men are weak. He knows they're going to flee him. They're going to depart from his presence in his hour of need. He knows that Peter's going to deny him. And he knows that Judas is the traitor who will betray him. Yet he loves these men. He loves these men. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The word is telos, termination. I, I told you it really means an unbreakable love. It's a love that once started goes forward and never comes to a completion. It's a love for us who know him by repentance and faith. It's a divine love that loves as much as God can love. The length and the breadth of this love is infinite and eternal, meaning that literally nothing can separate us from this love. Once you are Christ's own, once God sets his electing love upon you, nothing can separate us from that love. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And again, it doesn't mean just the end of his life. It doesn't mean just the end of their life, the disciples' lives. Again, it's a forever love. Tell us, completion to the end, perfection. Again, it's applicable to the disciples, obviously in the context of the story, but all the, all the principles are applicable to us, extended to us as followers of Christ. And because he loved them to the end, he loves us to the end because God doesn't change, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And again, that helps bring some clarity to that great statement by Paul in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, when Paul asked the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Right? It's a rhetorical question. So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Paul says, I am confident or I am convinced, I am sure, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing should be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that, my friends, is meant to give you and me a tremendous amount of hope. It's not just a verse to be read to study, uh, memorize, to check off your... I, I, I memorize another one and then just move on. Now, this is really something to be thought about and contemplated. The fact that nothing and no one can ever separate us from the eternal love of God through the person of Jesus Christ once God elects us uh, and places his favor and love upon us. That is meant to give you... me. I mean, you read that list, you go naked, famine, danger, sword, tribulation. Those are difficult times. And I would dare suggest that some of you have gone through or are going through or will go through in the future difficult times. And so when difficult times come into our life, instead of just running around like the world does, wringing their hands, going, I don't know what in the world to do, I have no hope, you have to slap yourself into reality. You have to speak to yourself the truth and stop listening to yourself. Speak to yourself the truth of the word of God and say that I know that nothing will ever separate me from the eternal love of God because of the person of Jesus Christ, not even the present trial or tribulation that I'm going through. That gives you confidence. That should get an amen. That gives you confidence to face the situation at hand, to know that your God, who's much bigger than you and much bigger than your problem, has it all under control. And your and my issue is not to figure out 
figure it out or make it work. Ours is to trust, obey, praise the Lord. His praise, have I read that somewhere in the Psalms? Shall continually be in my mouth. We don't have to worry about the nutsoness in this world. It's just a, 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 a visual picture of man's rebellion against God. Uh, just a, a, another demonstration of the depravity of man with minds that don't work. We praise our God. We know he's sovereign. I read the end of the book. So is the devil. He knows how it turns out. Jesus Christ wins. And we're on his side, not by anything that we have done, but only because of God's electing love to us and through his son. So he loved them to the end. He loved us to the end. It's a confident love. It's an assured love. Love through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's come into this world out of the love of the Father, the love of Christ for us, to secure our eternal salvation by his substitutionary atoning death on Calvary's cross. So we have a confident hope. We who've been purchased by great price, Christ himself, we are his own. And listen, again, if God can take care of the greater thing, that being our eternal salvation, most certainly he can take care of the lesser thing, that being our problems in time. So again, if we believe and trust in Christ's eternal love for us in the future, then we have to be encouraged and rely upon Christ's love for us now in the present. And then in the present again. And in the present again, because the only time you have to live is the moment. Can't change what happened five minutes ago, five days ago, five years ago. You're not in control of what happens 30 seconds from now. We live in the moment, and moment by moment, we trust, we rely on God's love for us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, whatever troubles, whatever heartaches, whatever sorrows, whatever difficulties in life we face in a fallen world, He has loved us to the very end through the cross of Calvary. He has defeated sin, death, and the devil. He loves us presently. And that gives us much hope, great encouragement that we need to encourage our own hearts with and those around us in the body of Christ to rest in, to trust in him again, moment by moment. That's what we're called to believe. That's the truth. We're to trust. That's the truth. We are to speak to ourselves daily. One writer says this, he who loved you to his own end on the cross has promised to love you to the very end. Do you realize that being saved by Christ means far more than going to heaven in the end? All important though that is, that also means that his love is resting on you through your present life. If you do not realize this, then no wonder you struggle with spiritual weakness, that you feel dry and distant from the Lord, or you fear to return to Christ when you falter and fall into sin. Yet his nail-scarred hands are held out to you even more now, marked with eternal emblems of sin-conquering love. More fundamental than our faith in Jesus and our will to live in obedience to him is this unchanging, unending, unfailing love of Christ for his own. No one is more devoted to your good, more sympathetic to your plight, more interested in your heart than Jesus Christ who loves his own to the end. Isn't that good? His nail-scarred hands are held out to you even more now, marked with the eternal emblems of sin-conquering love. He is devoted to you and to your good more than anybody else in the entire universe. Tremendously, tremendously encouraging truth. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, who loved them to the end. But then immediately we're confronted with the great contrast between Christ's love for his own and Judas's satanic treachery. Christ's love is immediately spurned. Christ's love is rejected, verse 2. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of man, to betray him. So again, the contrast here is stark. It's unbelievable. From the Savior's great love for his own to the traitor's satanic hatred in the person of Judas Iscariot. Now, we talked about Judas before. Judas is one of those who's become the most despised uh, person of human history. He's the one who's going to betray the Lord Jesus with a kiss. He's the one who is really a blight uh, on the page of human history, a person that we who know Christ, we can't understand Judas Iscariot. He'd been with the Lord three years during his ministry. He'd seen the repeated displays of Christ's power, his grace, his love, his compassion, 
uh, towards men, yet he still betrayed him. The life of Judas Iscariot is the greatest tragedy that you could ever read of and the greatest tragic life that anybody could have ever lived. And Jesus himself said it would have been much better for him if he'd never been born. So what verse 2 tells us is the inspiration for Judas's betrayal. Again, probably put here by the person of the Holy Spirit to contrast again the blackness, the dark blackness of the evil of Judas's heart as compared again in verse 1 to the wonderful love displayed through the person of, of Jesus Christ for his own. Again, one, one commentator writes this. He says, The Holy Spirit here intentionally and abruptly shifts from the brilliant light of Christ's love to the satanic darkness of Judas's heart. The contrast between Christ's love and Judas's hatred start, the latter proving to be the black backdrop against which the former appears all the more glorious. Now, while the devil may have put the uh, into Judas's heart or Judas Iscariot's heart to betray uh, our, our Lord, Judas is no victim. The devil or nobody else made Judas betray Christ. He's a traitor who's responsible for his own heart. He's responsible for his own betrayal. The evil and wickedness of his heart, the heart of Judas, that's what made him betray Christ. It was really his greed, his ambition all along that had really opened the door of his heart, if you will, to the devil's influence. Satan may have inspired the betrayal of Judas, but Judas, again, is fully responsible for his heinous act. Because the truth is, Judas's heart desired the same thing that Satan did, and that being specifically Jesus' death, as Judas and Satan are co-conspirators, if you will, in their murderous hatred of Christ. But again, the Lord knew all that. John 6 and 44, John says this, John says that the Lord knew, John 6 and 44, who it was who would betray him. John 6, verse 70, Jesus said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is the devil? Again, meaning Judas Iscariot. So here again, it's the night of the betrayal. It's the night before the crucifixion, Thursday night. Jesus knows when Satan shows up in the heart of, of Judas because Jesus knows everything. Drop down to verse 27. Verse 27, chapter 13, John says, Satan then entered into him, into Judas, and Judas, and Jesus said to him, to Judas, therefore what you do, do quickly. So the Lord is commanding the betrayer to act quickly in his betrayal because the clock is running out, as it were. Again, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's orchestrating all the events to make sure that he's executed when the Passover lambs are being killed uh, the very next afternoon on Friday afternoon. And again, the Lord, the Holy Spirit puts Judas's example here, this black hatred of Christ, this dark hatred of Christ, again, to contrast the pure love that Christ has for his own. Judas's hatred of Christ is really driven by his greed, by his ambition, by self-satisfaction. And self-satisfaction really has no capacity to love, no capacity to love Christ because uh, Judas is full of himself. Judas is full of pride and, and pride can't love others because you're too busy loving yourself. So again, we read the words of the, the scripture, we read the words of Christ, we, we, we hear the tremendous love that Christ has for his own, uh, we see the Lord's example of self-sacrificial humility to the point of death, and we become more encouraged, we, we grow in greater love for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the same events, the same words, the same self-sacrificing humility caused Judas to hate Christ even more, that's how much he hates him, with a satanic hatred. So we go really just these few verses from the love of Christ stated, verse 1, from the to the love of Christ spurned, verse 2, and now the love of Christ is going to be demonstrated, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, we don't know for certain, but more than likely, Jesus and the disciples have been kind of keeping a low profile, probably over in this final week before his crucifixion, probably over in Bethany with his friends uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, just a couple miles away. 
But traveling from that city just a couple of miles away over to Jerusalem, they would have had to walk. We don't, they didn't have paved roads per se like what we have. So they would have walked on heavy, heavily trafficked roads, dusty roads. And by the time they uh, uh, arrived uh, to this upper room, their feet being only protected by sandals would have been covered with dust and dirt from the, from the journey. Therefore, it would have been unpleasant for them to lay down because that's how they ate. They kind of laid semi-reclining uh, around a table so with their feet sticking out, so their feet needed to be washed. It was customary at the time that the host home provided a servant who would greet the guests when they arrived in the home with a wash basin and a towel and cleanse the feet of the guests. It was considered a menial task that was discharged by the, the lowest slave. And if you might remember back in chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but back in chapter 1, verse 27, when John the Baptist is trying to do, uh, express a desire of his feeling of unworthiness as in comparison to the person of Christ, he can think of no better way to explain it or to express that than to say that he deemed himself unworthy of kneeling down in front of Jesus in order to unloose his sandals and then remove them with a view of washing his master's feet. Right? So here, this is just a lowly task. And here in the upper room, there's no slave that is uh, there to perform that task. So one of the disciples should have got up and performed the task, but no one does that. No one is willing in the room to do that for each other because they're too proud. And not only are they too proud, but they had just been arguing amongst themselves uh, about the question of greatness. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. And seemingly it's a common argument that has repeated amongst these uh, individuals. Who among us is the greatest? And who's going to sit closest to the throne? Etc. and so forth. They had a desire to express domination, dominance over uh, each other just like the world does. So again, there they are in the upper room. They're getting ready for the Passover. The meal is ready. There's a, a pitcher and a wash basin along with a linen cloth and nobody stirs. Each disciple hoping that someone else will get up. Each disciple hoping that someone else will make the first move. And among them, one who will betray the Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. Now at this moment, the other men don't know that. They don't suspect it, but the Lord knows. Nevertheless, not one person in that room would take up and meet the need of others. Not one person would get up and take on the unpleasant task of foot washing. Again, a task delegated to the lowest-ranking slave on site. I mean, so low and debased was this necessary task of foot washing that in the culture, disciples of a teacher, disciples of a rabbi, were not even supposed to bow down and wash the feet of their teachers, their masters. Nobody stirs but Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Again, Jesus Christ knows exactly who he is. He's not just a mere man. He's the eternal God come into flesh. He's the one who's come from heaven into time to this earth to engage with sinners. He, he is the one who is the, the most majestic before the angels worship whom the angels adore, and now he's about to abase himself. Again, to take on this task of the most lowly, lowliest of slaves. He's going to serve these men who won't serve, his, won't serve each other. And again, that statement, Jesus knowing that his father had given all things into his hands, it was going forth from God and going back to God. Again, it's another one of John's statements to the deity of the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus fully conscious, knowing who he is, knowing that he is God's only begotten son, that he is the rightful heir. All things should be given to his hand. He is the rightful heir of all things. He's come forth from God, from the Father. He's going back to God, back to the Father. Now, in all right, he could have commanded, you get up and you wash my feet. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. And again, Judas is in the background. He's displaying the treachery of his heart, of his father, Satan, these men are all caught up in the moment. They're caught up with the pride and self-importance, the very same sin that caused Lucifer to be cast from God's presence, from his lofty position. And so these men, too, are also falling prey to the satanically inspired line of thinking, the satanically 
inspired lies of the, this culture, this anti-God, anti-Christ culture with all of its attitudes and actions and thoughts that are always focused on self. All, everybody in the culture always focused on their needs. Everybody in the culture always focused on thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to. All comes from their father, Lucifer. And Jesus, who's going to get up, he's going to demonstrate the only true alternative to the world's way of doing things, that being a life of loving self-sacrifice, loving servanthood, that follows the exact exhortation that Paul gives over in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. A very familiar portion of Scripture that I'm sure that we've memorized along the way. But then another portion of Scripture that I wonder, has the application really been made in our hearts and lives to the extent that it should? Because just stop and think, how many arguments could be avoided in the church? How many arguments could be avoided in our homes? between spouses if we would just with humility of mind regard one another as more important than ourselves probably a few and every time we have a chance to interact with somebody every time we have a chance to come into conflict with whoever at whatever level it's a choice that we have to make every time self lifts up its ugly head we have to make the decision are we going to serve self or serve others It's a choice. It's a command of Scripture. It's not just, again, something to be checked off in the box. I've memorized another one. Let me go on to the next verse. No, it's something to be practically applied. Doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind, letting each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Again, Jesus has the right. Jesus has the authority. Again, he could have commanded, you get up and you wash my feet. He doesn't do that. Rather, what does he do? Verse 4. He rose up from supper, he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about and then poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. It's an example of utter humility. It's an act of, uh, a tangible act of divine love. Because, again, the nature of divine love is others-oriented. The nature of divine love is self-disinterest. Biblical love is consumed with the object of that love. Therefore, it will humble itself, and that's exactly what Jesus does here. And in doing so, he gives an example of how to make the ultimate sacrifice, again, short of death, by the way that we can love others our entire life through, thinking of them expressly, disinterested in ourselves, but interest in them, making them, being consumed with them as the object of our love. Again, Jesus knew who he was. He knew that his Father had given all things into his hands. He understands that divine sovereignty. He understands he has omnipotent power. He knows that he's going back to the Father from where he has come. He's going back into eternity. He's going back into heaven, back into the abode of God. But he loves these men, and he has loved them to the end, completely, perfectly, unbreakably, eternally. Therefore, he will do for these men what they will not do for themselves. Because, again, true biblical love is not just the love of words. It's the love of action. John, 1 John, John in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 says this, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Right? Not, not I love you, and then walk away. No, it's in deed and truth. A biblical love is demonstrated. Agape love is a dem- demonstrable love. One writer puts it like this. He says, for fishermen to wash another fisherman's feet is a small condescension. It's a small act of humility, but... For the majestic, glorious creator of the universe to kneel on the ground to wash the feet of these proud men who are sinful in their pride is not only an amazing condescension, it is an indescribable self-abasement and a demonstration of the genuine love that he has for his own. 
But here is Jesus, the creator of the universe, washing the dirty, smelly feet of these men who are sinful, proud, self-promoting, self-serving, and ambitious, who will not dare to do something they think might strike uh, against their own dignity. But Jesus Christ is going to get up and serve them. Jesus Christ is going to get up and do what none of them will do. Jesus Christ, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God. Again, John stressing the exaltation of the person of Jesus Christ, the glorious creator God, the ruler of the universe. He's about to humble himself and wash the feet of these disciples, the dirty feet of these disciples. Again, in the context where the disciples have completely rejected the Lord's admonition that says the greatest among you shall be your servant. They've bought into the lies of the culture. They want to be great. They're not going to do anything that they think strikes against their own dignity. They refuse to humble themselves. But Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, rises from supper. He lays aside his garment. He takes a towel, girds himself about, pours water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. You'd have to imagine at this moment... These men were shocked, to say the least, in awe, feeling the emotions of shame, regret, rebuke, embarrassment. One writer says it like this, each of these men must have watched in painful silence as the Lord knelt before them as a slave washing their soiled feet. Especially when you consider the fact that any one of them could have got up and any one of them could have had the unbelievably great joy and honor of kneeling and washing the feet of Jesus, but they squandered that opportunity. Falsely believing that they were great, when in reality there was only one great person in their midst and the one who was great stooped to wash their dirty feet. Now, working his way through disciples, he comes to Peter, verse 6. And so he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And again, I think it's likely said with kind of a tone of remorse, uh, incredulity, uh, again, uh, and unable to take in what he's seeing the Lord do in front of him. Somewhat, somewhat appalled, perhaps, by the act of self-debasement on the part of the divine king because, again, this, the, the disciples are still fervently expecting the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven if you read a little bit further in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So the idea of the king of Israel, the Lord of glory, washing dirty feet doesn't fit very well with Peter and his way of thinking. So Peter's the first one to protest. Lord, do you wash my feet? Verse 7. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. And again, it's not going to be until after the death, burial, and resurrection, the ascension, that Peter's going to come to a full understanding, a full significance uh, 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 of, the, of the extent of Christ's humiliation uh, in his uh, incarnation. Again, Christ saying in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, The Son of Man didn't come to serve, but to served to give his life as a ransom for many. Many years later, kind of reflecting back and looking and having some space to think on this issue, Peter would have a much fuller understanding of the person of who Jesus Christ is and exactly what Jesus Christ did for them that day and what he will do for them on the morrow, on, on Friday afternoon. First Peter 1.18, knowing that Peter writes, First Peter 1.18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, for through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Jesus stooped, the king of glory, 
stooped and washed their feet and served them because they wouldn't serve each other. He knelt before Peter, verse 8. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Now, I don't know, some people on the outset might go, well, that's a good protest. You know, I guess it's maybe praiseworthy. I mean, uh, but, but it's not. I mean, the Lord desires obedience. Peter doesn't understand what in the world he's saying, what in the world's going on. And when Peter says to the Lord, you shall never wash my feet, just a note you might want to put someplace as a general rule. When you find yourself arguing against the Lord, you're probably not headed in the right direction, whatever the issue is, right? Just, uh, it's a freebie, right? When you're arguing against the Lord, you're probably not heading in the right direction. Jesus answered and said, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. And again, the reply that Jesus gives to Peter serves a couple of purposes. Number one, it corrects Peter and the rest of the disciples' misunderstanding of his messianic mission. Because at the first coming of Christ, or at his first advent, he didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a selfless sacrifice for the sins of the people. Isaiah chapter 53 and so on. So the Lord of glory came to humble himself to the point of obedience, even death on the cross. It's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. The humiliation of Christ, again, was really part of the mission. So Peter and the disciples need to be corrected of their misunderstanding of the messianic mission, his first advent. And the humiliation of Christ at his first coming isn't going to just stop there at the, the wash basin with foot washing. It's going to go all the way to the cross. And Peter and the other disciples need to accept that. They need to understand that. Because that's the only way that a man can ever be cleansed of his sin. It's by the cross of Christ. Richard Phillips, the commentator, points out this. He says, if Peter is not willing to allow Jesus the partial humiliation of washing his feet, how would he embrace the full full complete humiliation that Jesus would agonizingly endure in his death on the cross the very next day? Christ came to suffer and die the first advent, to be humiliated. Christ answered him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. So again, that reply to Peter is correcting Peter and the other disciples' wrong understanding, misunderstanding of the messianic mission. And secondly, that statement, that answer means that only those who are cleansed by Jesus Christ have a relationship with him. Only those who are cleansed by Jesus have a relationship with him. And the washing that the Lord is speaking about here is a common biblical metaphor for spiritual cleansing. That's important. It's a metaphor. The washing that the Lord is going to speak about here is a common biblical metaphor for spiritual cleansing. That is the issue. Psalm 51, verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Isaiah 4 and 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by uh, the spirit of judgment and the spirit of a burning. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Zechariah 13, 1 says pretty much the same thing. Acts 22, verse 16, much the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Starting in verse 9 in 1 Corinthians, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were what? Washed. You were washed. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So right in the middle of this physical washing of their dirty feet, the Lord stops and gives a theology lesson. It's a theology lesson on cleansing, spiritual cleansing, the need for spiritual washing. 
And it's only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and confess their sins that are cleansed by him and only those who are united with him eternally. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me, Peter. And again, unless Jesus cleanses us with the true washing of his shed blood for our sins, we can't have any part of the salvation that he offers. So like, honestly, us, Peter often, us often, he misses the point. Peter misses the point. Again, Peter misses the point. He doesn't understand what the Lord is saying at the moment. The Lord wasn't speaking about physical washing. There was some kind of mystical presto change. Oh, you put your feet in a bath and all of a sudden you get saved, right? That's not what he's talking about. Again, Jesus is giving him a theology lesson on spiritual cleansing. But again, not understanding, Peter impulsively, as he often does, responds, verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my, and my head. I mean, that's just like Peter, right? He goes from extreme to extreme. You'll never wash my feet. Now it's not never wash my feet. Now it's wash my feet and my hands and my head, right? He doesn't get it. So the Lord's going to help him understand. He's going to bring the issue back to the forefront. He's going to bring the issue back to a spiritual level, a spiritual understanding. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. So again, the Lord is talking about spiritual cleansing here. The only way for Peter and the only way for any other man to have his sins covered and washed away is through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, shed on on Calvary's cross. As again, salvation never comes to any man through works of righteousness, through religious activities, not even service in Christ's name. It's only by grace alone and faith alone, through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that his man is saved. And unless a man comes by faith to God through Christ, through that shed blood, that man has no part in God's kingdom and no part of eternal salvation that God is freely offering men through Christ. Again, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And again, on the very next day, Christ is going to die an atoning death that is meant to be that spiritual cleansing for his own, for his people. And again, there's no other way to belong to Christ except to receive that cleansing for which he will die, for which he will die to bring. And if he doesn't wash away your sins through his substitutionary death, and your belief in what he has done as your substitute on your part, you have no part of him. You have no hope of heaven. I I talked about it last Sunday night. It's great that you believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus isn't the issue. Do you love God? That's the issue. Do you love God? Is there any evidence of a transformational change in your life because of that love that you have for God, that love you have for Christ, because the Bible says that God changes us from the inside out, that once we are in Christ, we're new creations. And if you have a love for God, then that love for God is put there because God has first placed his love upon you. I asked uh, last Sunday night, is there any evidence uh, of change in your life? Is there any amazement in your life? Do you look at yourself and you go, man, I cannot believe who I used to be and who I am now. I can't believe that God in his kindness would have any part of me because it's nothing that I've done. It's all that he has done. The devil believes. There are many people in Matthew chapter 7 who will one day wake up and realize that their belief was not salvific. Lord, Lord, did we not do many things in your name and cast out demons and perform many miracles? And the Lord Jesus Christ says, depart from me, what? I never knew you. We didn't have an intimate love relationship. You better get this one right. I've been saying all through the study of the book of John, what you do with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is the by far the most important issue in your life, I guarantee you. Don't get sucked into the culture. Don't get sucked into the next thing that comes that the media throws out for you to be worried about. You better make sure you have this one right because it's only those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, those who by repentance and faith accept the truth, what God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you secure your eternal salvation. Not by works, not by effort, not by being religious, but by Christ. Christ who cleanses all who trust him. 
Christ who will shed his his blood the next day on Calvary's cross. He and he alone is the one who frees us from our sin. He and he alone is the one who brings us into God's family. He and he alone is the one who provides us forgiveness that we need to stand in God's presence. And Jesus says he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you're clean. So again, on a physical level, if you want to take it there, on a physical level, if you bathe for the day, you don't need another bath is what he's saying. You walk on the road, you get dirt on you, right? Just wash your feet because you're already bathed. And on a spiritual level, what he's saying is that the daily walk for the believer in Christ, for a follower of Christ, those who have already come, been bathed, been washed, those who have come by faith and received from him that once-for-all cleansing of their sin that never needs to be repeated, they never they don't need to get bathed again. They don't need to get saved again. They're already saved by Christ's atoning sacrifice, by his one-time sacrifice. He who is bathed only needs to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And look at those most wonderful words that the Lord speaks right to Peter. You're clean. You're already forgiven. You're saved. You already share in the redemption which my humiliation will merit for you. Wouldn't you like to hear those words? Wouldn't you like to hear the Lord of glory come up to you face to face and say you're saved? Well, he's just done that. For everybody who's placed their faith exclusively in him. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He who has bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are, you are clean. Right? He says that to us, each and every one of us. Richard Phillips says this. This means that with his shed blood, Jesus paid the debt of all the sins of those who trusted him. This means that God sees you in Christ. You're completely clean forever. If you confess your need of the cleansing that Jesus offers and believe on him for the forgiveness of your sin, you will never be more clean in the sight of God than you were the moment that that you are right now. Moreover, the Bible teaches that Christ's own perfect righteousness is imputed or reckoned to us so that believers in Christ stand before God dressed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus himself. As Paul explained, the great transaction by which Christ took our sins to the cross and placed his own cleanliness upon us, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? There's that great transaction. You'll never be more clean in the sight of God than the moment that you repented and placed your faith in Christ. Because at that moment, you're washed. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith, we're always saved. Now, it's true we live in a dirty world. It's true that we are touched by it. We're infected by it all around us. Cleansed in the sight of God, our standing before God forever settled. Therefore, again, we have great hope, great encouragement, knowing that our sins are forgiven always, fully, not because of our work, not because of our performance, but because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. Therefore, our standing before God is never in jeopardy. We're not saved on a Monday and accepted because we've done well that day, and then on Tuesday rejected because we've sinned and not done so well. It's through Christ's shed blood, through his once and forever all-atoning sacrifice, we're fully, finally, completely accepted each and every day and forever before our Father in heaven. And again, not based on our performance, but based solely on the sufficiency of the person of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of his one-time act of redemption on our behalf on Calvary's cross. He was bathed, only needs to wash his feet. All we need to do on a daily level in a sin-filled world is return to Christ again and again, confess our sin, bring the dirty feet of our hearts, if you will, to the wash basin of Christ's cleansing power. As John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our what? Our sins, right? We just go back and we confess our sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. 
to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, forgiven. We just need to get spruced up. We don't need to get a bath again. We just need to get our feet washed. And Christ continues to wash us over and over again. If we walk in the light, he himself is the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, Jesus says, verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. But then at the end of verse 10, he adds this, But not all of you. Not all of you. He knew that one was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. He knew it all the while is kind of the idea. Not all the disciples are clean spiritually. There is, of course, a notable exception in the group. That would be Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. The one who was chosen by Christ, yet Christ says he was a devil in John 6 and 30. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew... The one who is betraying him, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Again, even these words, these final words spoken by Christ, I really think is another loving appeal and another warning for Judas to not go that direction. Repent. It's a loving appeal and it's a warning to Judas to repent, to not carry out the wicked act of betrayal that he's about to undertake against the sinless Son of God because God knows everything. Not all of you are clean. So John states very clearly the love that Christ has for his own. He shows very clearly that that love has been spurned by Judas. John gives a tremendous demonstration of the love that Christ has for his own, that ultimate act of humiliation and self-sacrificial giving and the washing of these disciples' feet, along with the theology lesson that he gives. So, of course, there's a call, a call to respond to the love of Christ. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? So, again, he's given that parenthetical lesson, that interjection of the divine salvation, the, the need for washing, teaching about the washing of regeneration, this ongoing cleansing that it provides for those who trust him. Now he returns to the main issue, to the lesson. Do you know what I've done for you? You Do you know what I have done to you? He wants wants them to understand a lesson. And I think of those words as a little bit of rebuke, but it's also uh, words of loving, positive exhortation. He he wants them to learn, and he wants them to learn a lesson for the future, uh, a critical lesson, a crucial lesson, and the lesson's humility. Especially since these guys are always bickering over who's the greatest. And what they needed to learn was that if the Lord of glory was willing to lovingly humble himself and take on the role of the lowest slave to put on a towel, wash their dirty, stinking feet, then they should do likewise. And again, you got to make sure you don't miss the point, right? The point's not the water in the wash basin. It's not the washing of the dirty feet. That's just all a visual example of the teaching, a visual example of the lesson that Lord Jesus Christ is giving these people, these men. The, the visual example has to be more good than just verbal affirmation or verbal admonitions about humility. You need to be humble. You need to be, you know, humiliate or humble before other people, right? So he, he visually plays it out for them, and I guarantee you that these guys never forgot that day. The rest of their life. Especially as everything becomes clear and clear, and they really have a clear picture of who he is and what he does for them the next day. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and right you are, for so I am. Didaskalos, teacher, kurios, Lord. You call me teacher and Lord, you're right, for I am. It's just a straightforward declaration of reality. That's who I am. Now the application. And it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Verse 14, if I, then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. So if I, the teacher, the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, God incarnate, am willing to humble myself and gird myself with a towel and kneel before you, take on the form of the lowest slave and wash your dirty feet, 
most certainly it would be reasonable for you who are my followers, who are absolutely sinful and desperately in need of the forgiveness that I will win for you the next afternoon on Friday. When I'm going to humble myself, not just by bowing before you and washing your feet, but when I'm going to humble myself to the point of death, even death on a cross, as the eternal sinless creator dies in the place of his sinful followers. If Christ, who is the greater, would do the greater thing, then it seems most reasonable that his followers, the lesser, would be willing to do the lesser thing and humble themselves in Christ-likeness and serve each other. Not arguing over who's the greatest, but arguing, if you will, over how can I serve you. That's the issue. That's the issue. J.C. Ralph says this, If Jesus, the King of Kings, condescended to leave heaven to save souls, to dwell 33 years in the sin-defiled world, there is nothing that we should think too lowly to undertake. He goes on, he says, He wished to teach his disciples that they were to be willing to wait on one another, to serve one another, to minister to one another, even in the least and the lowest things. They should think nothing too low or humble or menial to undertake if he can show love and kindness and condescension to another. Verse 15, the Lord says, I gave you an example that you should do also as I did to you. Now here at this point, verse 15, some Christians come along and they say, well, you know, I think the Lord's actually instituting another ordinance for the church. He's bringing the institution, a formal institution, the practice of foot washing, just the same way that we... um, Observe baptism and communion. On the surface, there's nothing wrong with washing someone else's feet, but I don't think that's the issue that the passage is teaching. And I don't think that the Lord is advocating a formal ritualistic foot washing service or a foot washing ordinance for the church. And to take that path, I agree with the commentators that says, they would say that elevating the outward act of foot washing to the status of an ordinance really misses the importance of the lesson that Jesus is teaching. Because again, the Lord's giving a teaching, an example of humility, not an example of foot washing. His concern is not for the outward activity, but for the inner heart attitude. Because the external right is meaningless apart from the proper heart attitude. It's that internal heart attitude that Christ wants his followers to have towards others always. Not just at a special service that happens once a month or once a year or twice a year or whatever. He wants that attitude, that heart attitude always. And and very carefully, verse 15, he says, For I gave you an example that you should do as. Kathos is the word there, meaning according to as I did to you, in like fashion. I think if the Lord really wanted to establish a foot-washing ceremony as another formal ordinance in the church to be practiced, he probably would have used a different word like ho, meaning that which. Then he would have been saying, you should do precisely that which I have done to you. It's a command. You should do precisely that what I have done, right? In the command of the Lord's, uh, in the Lord's uh, table, he says, this command, do in remembrance of me. He doesn't say that here. I'm, I'm giving you an example. Don't miss the point for the the physical aspect is the heart attitude. Now, again, he didn't say, do the same thing I just did for you. Rather, he's saying, I want you to treat each other with the same heart attitude that I just treated you. It's humiliation. Washing of the feet is not the issue per se. It's the humiliation example, exemplified by the act of the love of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think if you make the ritual the issue... The ceremony of foot washing, the focal point, the main object, and I think you minimize the lesson that Christ is trying to teach. It's condescending love, condescending humility. That's the issue. Humility and Christ-like love is to govern every aspect of our lives together in the body of Christ. And a result of that kind of Christ-like humility always demonstrates itself in loving service towards others. 
So if the Lord of glory can humble himself and wash the feet of his thick-headed, sinful, arrogant disciples, then the followers of Christ, as Christ's followers, we must do likewise with each other. Right? The Christ-like humiliation is the issue. It's not the washing of the feet. And therefore, to refuse to follow Jesus' example of humility or Jesus' humble service and prideful, or to refuse to follow Christ in this example of humility is really a prideful elevation of oneself above him. Verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. I mean, again, if the most exalted person in the universe can stoop down to humbly and lovingly serve others, shouldn't we be able to do likewise? Especially if we call ourselves followers of Christ. The Lord concludes with this final thought, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. I mean, again, very simply, blessing flows from obedience. And again, if we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, then we have to walk in Christ-like humility all the time. Every situation, every individual we come in contact with. Doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility of mind, letting each of you regard one another as more important than themselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others, having this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 18. 